the accused Narayan Kamre, age 65, charged under Indian Penal Code, Section 306, abatement of suicide. Because Dubey is dead, he's been killed after an encounter broke out. This is the big breaking news that's coming in dramatically. Suspense is finally over. The Mumbai trial court today gave Mohammed Ajmal Amir Kassab the death sentence for murder and waging war against the country 17 months after the 26th. The Constituent Assembly to frame the Constitution in terms of paragraph 3 of the resolution. Hello and welcome to the Daksh podcast. I'm your host Smita. I work with Daksh, a Bangalore-based non-profit working on judicial reforms and access to justice. Judicial institutions in India, both courts and tribunals, are specialized public institutions driven by complex legal principles and patterns of precedence. But what can we discover when we shift focus from the philosophy and examine legal outcomes through the lens of hard data? Statistical methods can yield rich insights into how such bodies can be more accessible, efficient and accountable to the public. In this episode of the Daksh podcast, we sat down with Dr. Manaswini Rao, an applied economist and researcher at the University of California, San Diego, as well as a frequent advisor and collaborator for Daksh. In her earlier research, she has explored courts' role in implementing economic reforms and how parties on both sides are affected during litigation. Manaswini has joined us today to talk about the immense potential of judicial data to help strengthen the functioning of these institutions. I began by asking her, Given her background as a development economist, what drew her to study the Indian court system? Courts are actually pretty central, you know, in economics because kind of it's implicitly assumed that you have well-functioning courts for contract enforcement. And then also, of course, there's a huge literature on human rights, protection of human rights and in economics from the point of view of economics, too, where, you know, you think of access to formal justice institutions and judiciary is important, where particularly local norms, right, could be detrimental for certain vulnerable population groups, right? Think female, you know, all kinds of minorities, underrepresented minorities and so on. So in that sense, like courts are pretty important and central for like the development process. And so in my earlier work, the motivation was, you know, this whole contract enforcement channel where courts actually play dual role, one which is kind of how it's important to build trust in markets and so on, because you have like courts are like regulators, whether it's individuals engaging in contracts or businesses, which we call firms in economics jargon. So like think about businesses who want to engage with each other. If there is a well-functioning court system that kind of on the long run has this impact on uh, trust in markets and so on. But the other aspect, which kind of what my work tries to shed light on is the transactional nature of courts, right? And the current title of my paper is Frontline Courts as Judicial Capacity, as state capacity, in fact. And so the transactional nature of courts are basically what economists call the play a role in allocative efficiency. So in the sense, you think about these resources or factors of production, as we call it, stuck in litigation, whether be it credit or land that's stuck in this litigation, they are not put to their most productive use. And so if courts function better and there is a you know resolution on that dispute, then you can think about that resolution sort of helping that resource to be allocated more efficiently. So in that sense, like you can see how courts are kind of central to economics because they are sort of the facilitator of markets. 
And personally, I'm a development economist. I'm part of the economists who study the process of economic development. My own sort of background on another track of research, I've studied a lot about local norms, social networks, informal institutions, and so on. So it's like a two sides of the coin, right? Like how do village networks right, enforce certain norms and is important for collective action and coordination, whether you're managing local village pond or like agricultural land for grazing and so on, on the one hand. And then you want to like see, okay, then how do formal processes and institutions like the judiciary then come into play when you want to sort of go from a village economy to a large behemoth of an economy which a state is or a country is. So in that sense, like I feel like both types of research questions that I study is sort of fits into the broader agenda or research interest of economic development. Thank you so much. That definitely makes a lot of sense. But I think what you're doing now is you're looking specifically at motor vehicle ac- uh, tribunals and accident cases, right? If I'm not wrong, what are you trying to explore and what are you trying to look at? From my previous research, you know, I'd seen the local judicial capacities affected a lot by personnel who are basically judges, right? That actually make courts function. If you don't have judges, like that courtroom is basically sitting vacant or you have like a temp judge who is handling the docket, right? And so you know the kinds of problems that bring. And so... Then I got to think about, like, how do we learn more about judge productivity constraints? Each of us have our own productivity process, right? And I could be slow economist or a fast economist. There could be certain incentives that make me work better or not. And so with this motor vehicle tribunal, what was interesting is that it's sort of a natural experiment, quote unquote, uh, which means that it's like a part of context or a policy where you can basically tease out What are the basic causes uh, and consequences of judge-level productivity on case resolution and ultimately welfare? So that's what we are interested in. And so the interesting thing about the motor vehicle tribunals and accident cases are that the same cadre of judges from district courts are appointed to MACTs. And, you know, so they kind of go in and out of these tribunals, which are more sort of specialized courts where you have uh, streamlined types of cases that you have to work on versus when you are in a district court, you know, you probably have like motor vehicle cases along with murder cases and like debt recovery cases and so on. So you have like much more complexity in regular courts. And so by tracking the same judge who moves in and out of these motor vehicle tribunals to regular courts and vice versa, Hopefully we can uncover some key parameters of judge level productivity and then see like whether, you know, having similar case types, would that sort of boost their productivity, which means, you know, is there a case for tribunalizing? I mean, of course, that's a broad, broad question, but that's sort of a key motivation, right? Like, what are the pitfalls or benefits of tribunalization? Is it purely from the productivity side or then what happens on the welfare of the litigants, you know, if you just are much more productive from a quantity perspective and then what happens to the quality. So hopefully, you know, the fact that there is this really n- a nice context in India that provides us using this motor vehicle tribunals as a natural experiment, as I call it, we can uncover some of these interesting facts, which would be very, very hard to kind of document otherwise, right? Because it's really hard to tell a high court saying, give these types of cases to a particular judge and let's see what happens, right? So these kinds of like, experiments are hard to do in judiciary. And so, yeah, we look for such things that occur naturally because of some rule or policy and institutional context that allows us to study these. 
I think that idea of the fact that there is a natural experiment and all you have to do is observe it, that in especially kind of an access to justice in a judicial context, it's much easier to do and it makes much more sense than trying to say, let's have a control here and an experiment there and maybe some people will get access to justice faster and others won't just because of the nature of that experiment that's being set up. So yeah, I think that institutional structure definitely does make sense as a thing to to observe and try and see. Uh, when we look at the kinds of data-driven studies that are increasingly gaining prominence and making up a larger share of the kind of research that's done on these kinds of institutions, what are the kinds of either institutional or policy problems that data can help very clearly reveal, pinpoint or better diagnose? Yeah, so I think, I mean, well, statistics or like what we economists call it, econometrics, you created our own subfield. I think the key importance of this toolkit is to gain population level insights. And so for that, you need like records and records of data and then to separate signal from noise. So you want to be able to discern, you want to like sort of minimize the noise and to see if there's a clear, uh, you know, relationship between two variables of interest. Now, the advantage of like having empirical studies is that you use these toolkits to verify certain facts and causal relationship at the population level. Obviously, whenever we calculate an estimate, it always comes with a confidence interval, which means that we are 95% confident that the estimate lies between point A and point B, right? And then you give the midpoint as sort of, hey, that's the calculated estimate. And so in, in the sense, the statistical toolkit is sort of rigorous in that sense that like that, you know, there's also bells and whistles and, you know, and you have to like present this work, a bunch of checks and balances, peer review, presentations, and so on to kind of make sure that what you're doing is correct before sort of you get to a place where you say, look, here's a study that shows this is sort of the breaking news kind of a thing. And so... We are careful about that, like not making, although, of course, there are some studies that like to, you know, sort of catch the headline and so on. But sort of in general, an empirical study, a well-executed, careful empirical study is sort of, it can be sort of very useful when you are thinking about policy problems. And so what policy, you ask about what specific policy problems can these studies help reveal and solve it, that really depends on the particular study, right? So in the sense that, to just to give you an example of the effects of court congestion, right? So there's a bunch of studies, good empirical research that's already documented the sort of consequences of court congestions. But the interesting variation is what are the sources of these congestions? So there are a bunch of studies that have looked at changes in laws that alter the congestion levels. There's some studies that look at changes in debt recovery tribunals coming up that kind of like reduces the congestion and so on. And what I look at is basically personnel policies, like, dude, you have vacancies, right? And so that's sort of creating congestion. No, so each of these different types of studies have different policy implications. What I would say is like hire more judges. For example, changes in laws that has led to like variation in court congestion, they'll say, hey, then be careful when you're drafting laws, right? So there are different implications that come out of study that really depends on like what the study is trying to answer and how they're trying to answer that. But you can see there's a bunch of different types of policy reforms and suggestions that can come out of it. Yeah. How interested and receptive have you found decision makers in the Indian context to be responsive to such studies and such kind of work? Because we have this idea that being very complicated or being very kind of throwing a lot of numbers will scare 
a lot of decision makers. So is there cause to be kind of hopeful about the ways that these kinds of studies are actually impacting policy and impacting the way institutions are structured? I mean, I would probably give credit to all those people whose shoulders I stand on, right? Like huge credit goes to them. And and I think like Daksh is like a really nice bridge in that sense of where you sort of understand both sides is one of the important stakeholders in sort of like bringing everybody to the table to have the discussion. So those kinds of opportunities are very useful because then that is the hope, right? Where you know that like some policymaker will be part of such platforms who will then like at least listen to what you have to say, even if they may not act on what you have to say, but like at least there is that information exchange and the dialogue that's happening. So the thing is, like, it also depends on what kind of report you provide. You're not obviously going to send them an academic paper. So you have different products based on your research. Academic papers go to, you know, academic peer reviewers, and that has its own special whatever. It goes to journals and so on. But what kind of report you provide a policymaker is different. So the key number that a policymaker would be interested in would be something as cost-benefit analysis estimate, right? So this is something that we borrow from public finance a lot, where Public finance, actually, those groups like work a lot with actually people who sit in the budget office, at least in the US. So they work very closely. And I don't know the status in India, but like I know it is also catching up. But if you can put a number as to like, look, every year when you have to make the budget, you know you're making expenditures and you're keeping track of revenue. If you know that if your expenditure on some scheme today is going to generate three times revenue like five years later, then you, oh, okay, that's definitely a, a you know place to put my money in. Giving that number would be more useful for a policymaker than sort of giving some causal estimate for something which is cannot be translated to a cost-benefit analysis number. So I think it depends on what you present to what audience is important. I think that's exactly right. We've seen in a lot of our work at Daksh as well, that when it comes to certain, whether it's a perception study, whether it's some kind of a report that kind of tries to highlight Like, again, not bury the lead, but be like, this is the important thing to keep in mind. And everything else is just explanation and context and maybe options of what can be done once we all accept that this is somehow a common objective truth and not Mm -hmm. just a thing that one of us has interpreted or or spun out of what it's actually uh, representing. But so with that, I think, is there anything that you would want to kind of plug from a general engagement and understanding perspective of maybe some kind of a collaboration or a report that's very exciting and interesting to keep tabs on? So there is this greater engagement or interest in judiciary in developing countries, right? Particularly India. So a lot more economists, at least, I mean, because that's my field, are getting interested in this. So hopefully with now the judicial data opening up, right, with the e-codes data sort of being available to various platforms like e-codes itself, there would be a lot more work that's going to be coming out from this India. So, so in that sense, like India judiciary is going to, is on a global map, right, in terms of the quality of data. Of course, I mean, you may say that, oh, no, e-codes data is still like, you know, it has is a lot of noise and there's a lot of issues with it. But yeah, Despite that, like it is basically the universe of uh, the litigation over this specific, over a specific time period that's very relevant. So, not apart from this Motor Vehicle Act, I mean, I know a lot of my colleagues are working on, uh, like I mentioned, domestic violence, you know, uh, POXO and those types of issues, which are super important. So, that's something that you can keep an eye out for. And, you know, the idea is hopefully, like, they also find a way to kind of then dialogue with the policymakers to kind of make those changes. You work closely with specific state governments or 
Department of Justices or whoever the stakeholders are, right? But it could be also the police department, for example, because the justice sector is basically courts, cops, and people. So hopefully there's more work out there that sort of covers all these three branches. And what you're doing, I mean, the Dutch, like I really, I mean, I've, but I think what you're doing, bringing all the stakeholders together in working in the India justice space is, is important because at least, you know, the, the, keeping the dialogue open between different types of people who are studying this issue is very important because you get ideas not for not just research, but also like what are the key policy issues that you would push, right? Like what are the low-hanging foods that can be pushed, which would have largest impact rather than like chasing something that may be really, really hard to achieve and so on. So having these kind of like conversation and dialogue between people who have a lot of contextual knowledge and with people who have data skills, with people who have coding skills, you know, is a thing important to kind of have these types of platforms that you're building. That was my conversation with Manaswini Rao and you were listening to the Daksh podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, do consider supporting us with a donation. The link is in the show notes below. Creating this podcast takes effort and your support will help us sustain a space for these quality conversations. To find out more about us and our work, visit our website dakshindia.org. That's D-A-K-S-H India. .org. Don't forget to tap follow or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so do share your feedback either by dropping us a review or rating the podcast where podcast apps allow you to. Talk about it on social media. We are using the hashtag #DuckshPodcast. It really helps us to get the word out. Most of all, if you found some useful information that might help a friend or family member, share the episode with them. A special thank you to our production team at Made in India, our production head Niketana K, edited, mixed and mastered by Lakshman Parashram and project supervision by Sean Phantom. <laughs>